This is a Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 8, The Little Bushman's 2007 release, Pendulum. Robocop is actually in the Transformers universe. Right. <laughs> okay. And they're saying his, uh, his code name should be... Stop to Miss Christ. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go. Oh, God, I was crying. Oh, man. Yeah. Nice. Stop to Miss Crime. Nice. Yeah. Autobots roll out, you know. I, would, I wish I could just rename the podcast now. Stop to Miss Crime. Stop to Miss Crime. Just to, just to have it. So it's, it's not almost, relevant to anything. It's no, just it's, that. but it's almost as good as bipolar beer, you know. That was that was one of the best. Draws them in. Yeah, yeah, uh. exactly. Um, <laughs> I have found since that there's a quite a few bipolar beer bands out I there now. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I got the pedals out the other day and was just having a play and was going, "Oh, this sounds great." I'll just play along with some of the comfort tunes. I've been developing my parts a little bit more. Um, the more we do these podcasts, the more it shapes my playing in a way. And I'm sitting there going, "I'm overplaying on comfort. I need to develop less." Like, yeah, or develop more to play less. Yeah, I, I, in, I a, in, a sen- in essence, so yeah, just need an auto swell and a load of reverb for that song. That's all we did. I think that's all I've got. Well, auto swell, delay, and reverb. That yeah, was about it. Lots of reverb and just doing massive C major seven chords. That's that's what I do, and I just keep doing different um, shapes up the neck of C major seven. That's the whole thing is just C. I still want to do a re-recording of the set as we did it with Pubba. Yeah, that'd be good. Because, man, he just he just changed those songs. Mm. He changed those songs, but not in any other way, but make them kind of more musical. Fair enough. Well, uh, speaking of Pubba, anyway, I've been talking to him quite a lot in lead up to this episode. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> Because for those of you that don't know, Pubba is... Bit of a musical guru in my life. Bit of a bit of a hero. He's been around the Wellington music scene or New Zealand music scene really for quite a while. Uh, but over in the last ten years, we've both lived in the UK. Throughout all of my kind of formative teenage musical years, he was the local drumming hero. And then branching out from him, or he was the one that I had kind of semi regular access to. Because my band would open for his band sometimes and then we'd run these like holiday programs together. So he'd be a mentor for a band and I was like an associate mentor or something. Head minion. Basically head minion. Uh, yeah. We had like 10 year olds and 12 year olds and we were teaching them how to play Stone Temple Pilot. Nice. Yeah. So he grew up in the Wellington scene and was a huge fixture of it with his band Odessa. Fantastic, fantastic band. Throughout researching this record that we're doing today, I've just stumbled across quite a lot of articles about him as well because that's it's just how the New Zealand music scene is. It's how any music scene is when you think about it, you know. I read somewhere that his band recorded at Lee Preble's studio. Lee Preble is the guy that produced the album today. Right. We've actually heard from Lee. We've got some quotes from him, which is quite cool. They recorded at the studio and the tapes got lost or erased or something. And they had to hastily re-record in something like a weekend. They had to re-record their entire debut album. Ow. And they smashed it. It was awesome. But they were like the 
tight live band. We talk about the Dap Kings a few episodes ago for Amy Winehouse. They were on a similar level. And I hope Papa doesn't mind me saying that he was the one that actually introduced me to the Dap Kings. So uh, today we are discussing an album very close to both my heart and my home, hailing from Wellington Aotearoa, or as most people across the world know, as New Zealand. <laughs> and believe it or not, there are more bands in New Zealand than just Flight of the Concords and Crowded House. Don't let Jeremy Clarkson try and uh, influence you as to otherwise. <laughs> Today we're talking about The Little Bushman, and we're talking about their second album, their sophomore album, Pendulum, which was released in November 2007. I first heard of them, Jake, on Sunday the 28th of January 2007. Right, that's very, uh, that's very specific. Very specific. Uh... I was finishing a mixing <laughs> session on a recording that I've been doing for the high school ska band, the Charm School Rejects. We've talked about them. Mm. And the engineer stroke producer TK was answering my inquisitive questions about analog recordings. He showed me their first record. Just said, this is something I've been working on and put it on and then went, hey, they're playing a gig at the Botanic Gardens tonight. It's free. You should go. And I went. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> first time I heard of the band... Well, the first date I ever went on, actually, to that Ooh, gig. With the, uh, with the engineer. With the engineer, with TK, yeah. He, he was another one where he was in the scene and like Papa did some recording with him as well. And he, he came to school every Monday. He was the bass teacher at my school. And often if his students didn't show up and I was walking around, I'd just stop by for a quick chat <laughs> and try and, uh, try and bargain my way into some cheap recordings with him. Nice, yeah, nice. which worked quite a bit. We recorded a full length with him. We recorded a couple of EPs with him. So, yeah. The reason I bring up TK especially is because drummer for the Little Bushman, Rick Cranson, also taught drums at my school. Right. Okay. And again, me being nosy Mr. Watsits, if I saw that he was free, I'd just poke my head in the door and have a chat with him. And uh, especially this is when I was in year six and mm. I'd, I'd pop into this like really accomplished jazz school drummer who's massive on the Wellington scene. And I'd poke my head in as a guitarist, literally been playing for a couple of weeks at this school and go, hey, do you teach James? And James was the drummer that I was trying to get into my band. Can you teach him some better stuff, please? <laughs> <laughs> and... Well, to his credit, to his credit, he was just, he was an absolute darling, an absolute star. And he'd just be like, yeah, sure, bro. No worries. And you know what? James actually got a lot better. It was, it was pretty awesome. Rick, Rick Cranston, what an absolute legend. I've been back to New Zealand only a handful of times since leaving and coming to the UK. And the first time I went back, I bumped into him and it had been years since I'd seen him. Hmm. Almost, you know, probably five or six years. He remembered who I was. You know, he knew me as a 10-year-old and here I am walking back down as like a 25-year-old or so. He still knew who I was and was asking me about my guitar playing and all that. He's just a genuine good guy. So the band consists of four core members. Although their studio output is buffered up with tons of friends and colleagues, Warren Maxwell, keys, guitar, harmonica, saxophone, and vocals. Huge, mm. huge guy amongst New Zealand music. He... Mm -hmm was previously in a band, a reggae soul band called uh, Trinity Roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
departure. Huge departure. And don't worry, I've got a story. And he was also in the multi-platinum selling Fat Freddy's Drop. Oh, right. Uh, So he left them right pretty much at the peak of their critical success or their chart success with Wandering Eyes. He, he left them to form this band. Right, okay. I met Warren Maxwell at a summer camp for musicians, one of these rock camps that we've talked about where Pubble was there mentoring and so on. He came to do a lecture and he kept referencing Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and I thought it was an act. I thought, why, why are you sucking up to us, man? You're in a reggae band. Just tell us about Bob Marley. And I thought everything was so black and white, one-dimensional. If you're in a reggae band, you are not allowed to like Led Zeppelin. It's true, you're not. You're not. You're allowed so. to like Bob Marley. You're allowed to like... Um, Jimmy Cliff. Jimmy Cliff, yeah. <laughs> Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff. Uh, Bobby uh, McFerrin. Yeah. And uh, at a push, you're allowed to like the police. So I, I was I was really taken back by the end of his talk because this guy just kept talking with such passion about Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and he was just so cool. I eventually got to meet him again not long after that, when he played at the Botanic Gardens, that first night I heard of them, saw them, I got to speak to him and I was like, wow, that did actually sound like Zeppelin. He's like, Joyce, man, that's cool. I was just blown away, just blown away. After the Charm School Rejects dissolved, the drummer Sam started a new band called Broke and they managed to get Warren Maxwell to produce their debut record. Sometimes feel as though it could be living in a bubble. It's impossible there's some design of all your trouble. Pretty cool. So he's he's quite big around the scene, which is which is cool. Uh, next we have Joe Calwood on guitar and Brotherly Duties. Apparently, that's that's uh, according to the liner notes. Brotherly Duties. Brotherly Duties, because after Joe we have Tom Calwood, right? Who plays the double and electric bass, vocals, cello, and violin. So two brothers in the band. Tom Calwood left the band to join Wellington neo-psych rockers, the Phoenix Foundation. Ah. Yeah, so you would have seen Tom Kelwood play when we went to see the Phoenix Foundation oh, okay. at audio all those years ago. Many moons ago. Yeah. That was an awesome gig. That was that was really good. And you came to see the Datsuns too, didn't you? Oh, yeah, but the Datsuns are, you know. They were up there. They are up there. Yeah. Know, great band. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, and you'll you'll finally finally get this reference now, we have Rick Cranston on the drums, or as the liner notes put it, the Unga Bungas. Oh, right. That's where I'd got this one from. Lovely man, taught at my high school, patiently listened to me. Really lovely man. So the album was produced by Lee Preble, who's also a fairly big name producer in Wellington. Previously produced the back catalogue for the Phoenix Foundation, mm-hmm. the back catalogue for the Black Seeds. He produced uh, a live album for Flight of the Concords. He produced the back catalogue of Trinity Roots, Pick Ronger's album. I mean, I don't know if any of these names actually mean much to you. Some of them. Yeah. Not all of them. Not all of them. <laughs> He's a big name in New Zealand music. He's won New Zealand like producer of the year. It was recorded at Erskine College, a former grade one listed heritage building in South Wellington. An architect behind the buildings was famous Wellingtonian John Sidney Swan, who did quite a lot of the architecture around Wellington. The building was completed in 1906, 100 years prior to the recording of this album in 2006. It's since been demolished. I was going to say, you said former listed building. It's yeah, like... yeah. 
I mean, enlisted is supposedly protected. That's what I thought. Yeah, uh... and it got demolished for apartment blocks. Why? It's not like you're lacking in space in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, oh, it's quite a central location, though. <laughs> anyway, let's not get into that. Shall we take a listen to the tracks? Let's have a listen let's to the listen. tracks. First track is a karanga. A karanga is a traditional Maori custom, uh, which is part of the pofuri, which is a welcome ceremony. Um, I've always heard the karanga with a female voice. The track has the same melody being played by the legendary Richard Nuns. Producer Lee Preble, we managed to reach out to Lee and he was really kind and obliging and sent us in some answers via email. And he said of Richard Nuns, I've recorded... Tangapuro, which is the name for the Maori instruments. Right. I've recorded Tangapuro uh, quite a lot, so it was pretty comfortable with the process. Richard has a lot of mana, which is uh, like spiritual energy, 
Richard has a lot of mana about him, so it was a very special recording. We also managed to reach out to Joe Colwood, the guitarist, and he said this about Richard. Yes, I was there for the for the recording of the traditional Māori instruments, the tonga poro. Yeah, it's always moving to be around those sounds. Richard is a legend. I mean, he's done so much work preserving some of those instruments, him and others. He's, he's definitely not the only one. There's a few people uh, and some of his young disciples as well. But he's got some amazing stories, Richard. I did a whole tour around, I think we went around the North and South Island of New Zealand with a project called Urban Tanifa. The music was written by Jeff Henderson, a very uh, creative saxophone player, among other things, who lives up in Auckland. Richard was playing Tongaporo on that tour as well, and so got to hang with him a lot and see some of his instruments and chat to him. And he's had some amazing experiences where instruments, traditional Māori instruments that have pretty much been lost forever, him and some of his colleagues have just worked so hard to try and recreate what they were. This is by talking to some of the elders, some of the older women from the various iwi and getting their stories about the instruments that they grew up with or they heard when they were young and trying to get them to describe them and then trying to um, <laughs> trying to make these instruments from just these descriptions, these verbal descriptions from these people. And he's got one story of one old kuia who, you know, he'd, he'd made this instrument and he was hoping it was about right and he presented it to her and she says, yes, yes, she was quite excited because it looked like what she remembered from her childhood and then he started playing it and tears just started streaming down this woman's face because obviously he, he'd nailed the reconstruction of this thing to the point where the sound was obviously close enough to what she remembered um, to trigger that emotion of her childhood and this instrument that it had been lost. You know, these dudes have managed to refine a lot of their history, which is incredible. He got commissioned by the Department of Conservation because they were worried about the bird numbers in a certain area in the South Island. And they play these, this bird song over speakers to try and attract them. They think, well, if we play this song, then we'll be able to attract these birds. And they just weren't coming. They're, th they're thinking, oh, man, there's none of these birds around. They must be going extinct. And Richard went down there and he had to listen to the, um, to the song. And he's so knowledgeable with both his instruments. And a lot of the instruments were used to mimic birds and things traditionally that he took one listen to Doc's recording and went, oh, that's the wrong um, sort of whānau or family of, of bird. Like, that's a slightly different dialect. <laughs> so Richard knew the dialect was wrong and that's why these birds weren't being attracted. I hope I'm telling the story right if Richard's listening. I hope I'm not misquoting him. You know, I'm an amateur in this stuff. But he, he got out this instrument and began to try and play the correct dialect of this bird and he reckoned eventually he ended up with just these birds climbing all over him. <laughs> which is quite an amazing story. So, uh, yeah, w having Richard on the album was a real blessing, of course. This song is a call to welcome for the record, settling the listener into the culture. And I think maybe, Jake, you you can comment on this. Even if you're unaware of Mouldy Customs, I think you get a sense for the occasion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it kind of gets you settled in for what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think starting with the karanga also gives that sense of earthiness that this band really strives for. It gives that sense of culture. It gives that, mm. that sense of purpose. And I know that Maxwell, since his time in the Bushman, has gone on to really focus on kind of indigenous studies and indigenous music across New Zealand. I don't find that surprising at all. No, no, no. So, Nature of Man is the second song. 
this song opens with Cranston pounding those mm. gabungas. Fantastic. Producer Preble. PP. PP. Uh, so our boy PP, producer Preble, said of the performance, the drumming on Nature of Man still gives me tingles. Rick is such a powerhouse drummer, I could just listen to him for days. Joe also mentioned the drum sound on Nature of Man. Um, the favourite one to record m- might have been um, Nature of Man, which sort of segues into Corrupt Demeanour. That was just the mission, but I think getting the drum sound just right was a uh, was a real thing on that one. It's The drums came up real nice on that. Slightly influenced by a Fleetwood Mac track called Tusk, I think. That real flat, defined, tom-tommy sort of groove. And maybe also a little bit come together. It's got some of that in it. Yeah, so getting the, that drum sound just right and also towards the end it just gets chaotic like there's all these horn riffs and then it was real fun just getting the arrangement to work with that crossfading into corrupt demeanour. I guess that odd time jilty sort of piano part comes in underneath the end of Nature of Man and um, yeah, we actually got some horn players in live and Warren was conducting them through the whole overdubbing of that in section of Nature of Man and how it leads into Corrupt Demeanour. It was a real, um, it was a tricky piece, but it was quite a rewarding process because I think that all came together real, real nice, the way the arrangement all flows from one track into the other and the way that in general the sound and arrangement of Nature of Man worked, that was, yeah, it was a great fun one to record. I've always associated the guitar sounds with country sound, although I'm growing unsure of this now. can see that actually i've always thought that it was like really country but now that i listen to a lot more country or i'm more hesitant rather to call it country it's not quite bluesy but it's not quite country you know it's in this kind of middle ground like blues folk well maybe well wouldn't wouldn't that be folk wouldn't it that's like that is the middle ground between country and ah oh, but it's not blues. it's not folky necessarily it's I, I always just associated it with country i always just thought that doesn't sound very rocky it sounds quite country in that way, but I like it. New Zealand country. New Zealand country. There we go. Is that a genre of music? New Zealand country? Oh, there must have, be. Like, yeah, I think we have New Zealand country does awards. Does New Zealand have its own, like, Dolly Parton? Or? Uh, that is a good question. We've definitely got, like, our own um, Conway Twitty. <laughs> um, We've got those kind of singers, you know. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think there is a bit of a country and western scene in New Zealand, but it's not, not that big. No. No. It, well, it's not big anywhere outside of America, let's be honest. I suppose so, yeah. These stabs in the groove on the what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Mm. Really only enhance the returning groove. It kind of builds up this anxiety in the listener, doesn't mm, it? Where yeah. Boom, what do you think about that? Boom. Yeah. I really yeah. like that. I really like that. Then there's a fantastic harmonica solo. (laughs) 
phrase I'd ever thought I'd hear. Well, uh, yeah. as if this song couldn't get any better, then they throw in the harmonica. I mean, you tell me a bad harmonica song. Thunder Road, Bruce Springsteen, amazing. I mean, I'm just trying to think through Bob Blowing Dylan's in the wind. catalogue. Yeah, um, amazing. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the harmonica, um, as you'll probably know from my love of Huey Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Massive yeah. fan of the harmonica. I always look forward to the little guitar riff in the outro. They start to mold this song into the next song. And this happens quite a lot on the record where the songs kind of flow into each other. And there's this little, I don't, I, I want to say dissonant, but it's not really that dissonant guitar line. Da -da 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 -da. In the background, it, it's almost a blink and you'll miss it yeah. sort of thing. But I always listen out for that. I've always, I've always enjoyed that and hearing the horns come in. just becomes this big sonic scramble, doesn't it, at the end? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Seeing the song perform live, they relegated Cranston to a tambourine for the song, which really... Oh, really? really deflated my enthusiasm i saw him in the tiny like spiegel tent at the wellington or new zealand international arts festival right and we'll talk a lot more about that gig <laughs> later because that that looms large in my family history yeah this was one of the first first songs they played and i, I was waiting for this song i i remember i i bought this album i was walking the streets of dunedin visiting my cousins and walked into a shop called real groovy right. which was like the record chain across new zealand for right okay they they have these massive shops as the only place you could still buy vinyl you know in right, these yeah. times and cassettes and stuff like that it was it was cool and so i went into dunedin's real groovy and i had no idea that this album had actually come out i'd already bought their first one in wellington at real groovy i mean there was no social media for them to say hey guys new album new album but anyway i walked in and there it was so it was like instantly got to get that which has been a bit of a theme in my life because I used to get money from my folks. Like they'd give me 20 bucks here and there to go to the movies. And I'd usually skip the movies and buy a CD instead. <laughs> and uh, I think my old man was getting a bit worried that I was being rather antisocial because I wasn't actually going to the cinema. But that's just what me and my mates did. We'd go and buy, we'd, we'd hunt through Real Groovy and see how many CDs we could buy for 20 bucks. Well, nothing wrong with that. No. So... Nature of Man is discussing themes that you can guess. They're a fairly political band, shall we say. I mean, this isn't a political <laughs> podcast, but they're, they're discussing things like corporate greed and environmentalism, and the Nature of Man kind of says it all, really. Yeah. Yeah. The song that Nature of Man flows into is Corrupt Demeanor, a song in 7-8, which I've only just now, having been to university and got a degree in music, have been able to work out for the first time. <laughs> I can count to seven. Well, no, it's more that I just I spent so long in my uh, in my youth not really being able to do metrics like that. And four four, I could do exactly. eight eight. I could do four four, and that's about I it. I can do three four. Yeah, I can do three four, but I don't actually realise that it is three four when I'm playing it. And I I just remember listening to this and trying to count it for years and thinking no. 
there is no metric here. He's just doing willy nilly, doing whatever he wants in the moment. And that's just how awesome the band are is that they're doing it all in the moment and they're all reacting. Then I listened to it again, researching for this and I figured out, Oh my God, it's just in seven, eight count to seven. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I figured it because there's a group of four and then a group of three. That's how I figured it out. I didn't just count to seven. I was just because I was listening for James. Anyway, um, the piano chords sound absolutely huge. Leading him through the tail end of Nature of Man and then especially, especially at the end when they put on that kind of low octave drone on the piano. Cave. he did that on songs as well and he started playing around yeah, with the octaves yeah, yeah. to give it more gravitas and <laughs> yeah and i was just blown away i'd i'd never even thought about it but i'm i guess i'm not a natural pianist so. no no neither well yeah the expressive versatile instrument yeah yeah i was never into this song as a kid no i can see that i can see why i didn't like it because of the cursing <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't raised uh, as a kind of Christian or Mormon or anything like that. Uh, as a part of my hopped up role model complex is what I'm going to call it. I developed <laughs> strong opinions that musicians don't necessarily need to curse in their songs. Likewise, they don't need to take drugs. <laughs> then, as previously mentioned, I read a book on Neil Finn and discovered he'd not only cursed in his music, but it also partook in some drug experimentation and the book was promptly returned to the school library <laughs> as I preferred to remain ignorant to the cause. I now, however, I do, uh, I do quite enjoy this song, especially now as a high school teacher. And now that we look at the state of politics and economics, you can appreciate what the guys were trying to say 13 odd years ago. So the next song, the fourth song on the album is called Mary. The second time that I saw them, this was in the Spiegel tent, Maxwell proclaimed Mary is the name of Mother Nature. And all of a sudden, the song started to make a bit of sense. sense, yeah. Okay. My dad, who had driven me to the gig, was outside in the bar and he overheard this proclamation and decided that was far too hippie for him. (laughs) (laughs) And it's now a bit of a bone of contention. If you you even mention the little Bushman, he starts going, Mary. That's all he knows. Um, This proclamation makes the lyrics more relatable. And at the time, I would have been 16, 17. I I took everything very literally. Mm. So I was thinking, who is this Mary that doesn't like dirt on her bread? No one likes dirt on their bread. Why does dirt belong to her? And once he said it, it was like, oh. It's a metaphor. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. This song is absolutely covered in wah-wah. No, she never turn her back on them. She starts to smile cause she knows. They call her crazy. 
Strixian? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could put it out there. I don't like Lala. Oh, okay, Adele. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, it's got, it's got its place. I mean, you know, Metallica wouldn't be Metallica without the Wawa. But, um, yeah, for this for the kind of thing that they're doing, the more kind of psychedelic side of things, it's sort of you need it, don't you? That or a Univibe. Why not both? Old El Paso. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you, though. If you're going to do psychedelic 60s-inspired psychedelic rock, you kind of need to have a wah. When we spoke to Joe, he said that this is probably his favourite song to perform live, and we'll let him explain it for you. In terms of playing live, I have to maybe say Mary, just because, yes, classic, classic fun wah-wah, sort of Hendrixy wah-wah lines to play, and it's got that nice big psychedelic section where it all just wigs out completely. You're going to have a whole bunch of fun and then it finishes off with a stonking riff. So what's not to like about that? doesn't have to play tambourine. It's basically what it boils down to. They let no, play the Rick. guitar. Oh, that was Rick, sorry. That yeah. was Rick, the drummer. So on this song where they have these awesome drums. That's such a weird choice. They just have him going. So they don't make him play the tambourine? No. In this song? No. No, no, no. All right, the song where you get the good parts, you're going to play the tambourine. Yeah. Oh, but this is also a very good drum song. A lot this of drum fills. A lot of drum fills. Um, I really liken him to Pubba. Like, I think their their style of playing is very similar. They studied at the same school, right? New, New Zealand School of Jazz. Right. In fact, I think all the Bushmen went to the New Zealand School of Jazz. It's just that thing of, like, it's very free and loose, not just Tony Groove. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Groove. Like, But Tony Groove works yeah. when you're in a band that needs Tony Groove. Yeah, yeah. For a band like this, it's all about being loose and letting the music take you on a journey. It's it's good that they do that. It's this chorus where it all locks in. upside down strap and uh well even his voice kind of sounds a bit Jimi hendrix in that way and so castles made of sand melts into the sea eventually yeah but do you think that was probably i think that's what they're going for i mean on the first album the owners of sand they have a song called jimmy yeah, I, I'm listening to that now. I think maybe maybe it is overdoing it on the wire because it would be cool to hear some of those lines. Some of those lines are so intricate. It would be nice to hear them without the that kind of sweeping oh, effect. Without that, or unless they just have enough, like a vibe on it or something. Or, mm. or maybe it is a vibe problem. No, it's definitely, definitely a wire. But as I used to, I used to not really like all the playing over there. I used to think, oh, he should just be giving it some chords and yeah. like a bit of twiddly. But actually, the more I listen to it, the more I like the kind of counter melodies that are coming through where they call it crazy. Boo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doom. Oh, I think it sounds really cool. They call it crazy. The next song is The Seed. Far out, man. Far out, man. This is uh, Trippy 2.0 at the moment. Although, I'm going to just throw it out there. I don't think this is the trippiest song on the record. 
No, I don't think so. I say it's definitely a bit of a throw callback to um, like longer, trippier, like Doors songs. Yeah, I, I get a Pink Floyd vibe from it. Mm. But there, there definitely are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the bass tone. I'm I'm trying to decide. Is that rolled back? Like, what you mean the tone knob? I really like the ostinato that he plays with the boom, boom, It's quite hypnotic, really, and he holds down the rhythm, doesn't he? Really, throughout most of the song. Yeah, yeah. Because Rick, we were just trying to decide. Rick's playing like a hi hat, possibly a hi hat tambourine. transfers on to like the ride and the drums and so on there's there's awesome drum development in Mm. this song back to the bass though the chorus features pizzicato cello the chorus we have bass chords i used to work in a coffee house with a bassist who was always taken by the bass chords used across steely dan's asia he'd point them out every time without fail and just like as if he'd never told me before and he'd just be like bass chords <laughs> bass chords have become my thing now wherever i hear bass chords it's like oh Ooh, bass chords. Yeah, so you've already said it, really. This song makes me think of The Doors. And it's probably due to the Rhodes keyboard. aside the day that i was hearing these guys for the first time with tk mm. he was talking to me and he's like oh i said oh well what does warren do does he just play the saxophone and sing again thinking the guy's one dimensional he can't be that good at one instrument and play all these others too it's true and uh, tk says no 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 he was playing the roads and some hammond and i was like the roads he's like yeah the fender roads and i thought it was a guitar <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Fender can't branch out into... Exactly, uh... exactly. I found out that night, seeing them live, I was thinking, well, he doesn't play guitar at all. What you... <laughs> <laughs> then I found out what a what a Fender Rhodes was. I had to look it up. I had to Google it. You had to do that when you got home at the time. Couldn't do it on your phone back No, oh, back no, no. Those were the days where you open your phone, like flip top, 
open it up and see that it's connecting <laughs> to the internet and you <laughs> mash that button to just, get it off. Yeah, yes. Oh, no, I can't afford 50p <laughs> yeah. a minute. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, wait, no, 50p a minute would have been a very good rating. Yeah, yeah, no, it was crazy. There is also so much space in this song. Very ambient guitar, almost unrecognisable guitar, really. can't actually hear much but Not you can really. hear it's... the the atmospheric sort of things happening yeah it's a much more textural thing as opposed to yeah widdly wild lines exactly and showing a lot of dexterity in his playing yeah yeah uh next song then we have is the seed part two not to be confused with the seed 2.0 of the roots a lot less psychedelic but it sounds a lot more upbeat yeah yeah, yeah definitely the hi-hat rhythms are great. And they lead into the next song, which is fantastic. Pedal steel guitar played by producer Preble, our boy PP. Oh, PP gets a plane credit. What a guy. Scat singing along with the keyboard. Which sounds quite cool, but such a huge long melody. miraculous that maxwell can remember what he was playing and singing at the same time i often tell gcse students off for creating melodies like that because they're going to get marked down by the exam board <laughs> because according to you know 50 year old white men music needs to be short repetitive melodies yes yes that you can sell that people can hum along to exactly Although Maxwell, he's just proved us wrong. He hummed along to the whole thing, didn't he? Well, he did, but he, he wrote did. it. He wrote it. And practised it. And practised it, yeah, quite possibly. Unless he did it all on the fly. Right. Imagine well, maybe. It. Imagine it. Imagine that. Yeah, but that's that's an important skill of being able to play your instrument, though, is audiation, isn't it? It's quite good for even playing guitar, just practising your lead lines just by singing them as, yeah. you, as you play them. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of going... Playing exactly that as you sing it, but you're not playing that. Well, I don't have a guitar in my hand, do I? You didn't even air guitar it though. Oh, I don't play air guitar, do oh, I? Oh, sorry. I can't. That's advanced level stuff. You have to be able to know all your scales on the instrument. You don't play air guitar. Oh, sorry. You know you can actually buy an air guitar. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, genius. Yeah, well done, whoever thought of that. I know. Ridiculous. So the song ends, as I've said, with the cymbal groove which moves into Holy Ground, which is the next song. Holy Diver. This song is rockin'. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Yeah, boy. The cymbal work is fantastic. The monotone of the ride cymbal with the occasional bell, along with the drone of the Fender Rhodes, which we just found out is a keyboard, creates an <laughs> ominous feeling. <laughs> You're just sitting there, you're feeling feeling a bit of dread, really. What we really need to do is create a powerful sense of dread. So 
See, the longer the note, the more dread. It's the sound of dread. <laughs> the voiceover at the beginning wasn't entirely intentional. captured sound and I'll let Joe explain that one. And there's some vocals at the start of that tune, Holy Ground and that was uh, Richard and Warren having a little kororo in the recording room having a chat and Richard was talking about the importance of music in the Māori worldview, um, how it's called Te Reo Ne Atua, I think is how you say it the language of, of God. And that's another, going back to Lee Preble, that's another genius Lee Preble moment where he saw this conversation happening and quickly hit record. There just happened to be some ambient mics hanging around and he quickly hit record and captured this little kororo of those two talking and it ended up making the album. Oh, okay. I was always a little disappointed that the eventual groove is half-time. <laughs> set up by the it feels like it should be it feels like it should yeah. just be like double time rocking but i do kind of like it yeah I, I get what you mean it feels like it should go into a yeah but once again i think that's that was a big element of a lot of the kind of bands it sounds like were an mm. influence on the record so yeah we were discussing earlier i get a really strong edgar winter vibe and the oyster cult not don't fear the reaper obviously uh and like other psych prog bands so yeah like i said focus Focus. But not Hocus Pocus. Not I Focus. No. They had other songs as well. Yeah. Believe it or not. The <laughs> last, last note I have about this is the Tom Tom loop at the end is also really fantastic. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, best thing on the album. <laughs> So the next song is Next Time. Producer Lee Preble, PP. Our boy PP. Producer Preble states this is his favourite song from the record. Next Time always brings a tear to my eye. A beautiful song about a life that never got a chance to see the world. I feel bad for mocking it now. Yeah. <laughs> and I just let it happen, just <laughs> waiting. This song was actually cut from the vinyl reissue that came out uh, this year. It was a crowdfunded final reissue they oh, did nice. so joe the guitarist completely set this all up himself and actually i'll just let him talk about it now well the first thing to say is that it was a mission like far more of a mission than i imagined it ever would be but uh, a well worth it mission yeah yeah i mean some of the other guys have in in various other projects they have their music on vinyl already um but in terms of my guitar playing as far as i'm aware that's the first time I've personally been on the vinyl format and it was something I really wanted to do. I was sort of the guy driving it, to be honest. And it was great, but uh, yeah, definitely a mission. We had to go through the crowdfunding process. I only just got that over the line, got enough through the crowdfunding to cover the cost of getting it pressed and then, um, you know, have to get all the music remastered for vinyl and get the artwork all retweaked for vinyl and then send it up. And yeah, every step of the process there can be little delays because you're always waiting for very busy people, a busy mastering engineer, busy art people. You know, even they have to send it offshore to get the master disc cut, and there's another busy person who have to wait for. And just as uh, just as it landed back in the country and was ready to go, they pressed 300 copies, and then lockdown happened. So 
We ended up with 300 copies of the record sitting in a warehouse and the couriers were only couriering essential items, food and medicines, so we couldn't get the vinyl to the peoples. So that was another delay. Everyone's been very patient and yeah, it's been a great learning journey and a dream come true moment is definitely one way of putting it, yeah. So this song was cut from the vinyl reissue because of the time factor. When we look at these recordings, this was recorded for CD. Mm. Oh, the album's nearly an hour long, isn't it? Well, we didn't think about this in the time. I mean, vinyl was almost a dead medium <laughs> until the hipster resurgence. And, I mean, we weren't streaming at this point. It was purely just CD sales. So with CDs, you almost have an unlimited amount of time. With streaming, you truly do have an unlimited amount of time. You could do a 100-song album. But there's other actual interesting factors about vinyl. When Peter Gabriel released So, originally he wanted In Your Eyes to be the final track. But because... The further into a vinyl record you go, the less bass frequency and response you get. He felt forced that he had to kind of put that to the beginning of a side. So right. he wound up putting it right in the middle of the track listing ah. because he wanted the bass frequency and resonance there and put one of the kind of slightly less bass heavy songs at the end. Oh, All enough. these things that I just never even had to consider. No, of course. No, well, why yeah. would you? you well, know. exactly. But that's probably why now he's half speed remastering every album oh it's really? driving me crazy yeah so all the reissues he's done and he's pretty much reissued everything that he's ever done now but it's all at half speed so you got to play it oh so it was 33 now you do it at 45 yeah yeah exactly so Why? well i'm assuming so that because it's half speed you're actually getting more bass response because you're taking up less of the vinyl right right yeah yeah nick cave is doing it too it's driving me crazy so you go to put on a record and someone puts that on and all of a sudden it's going, I wanna be. <laughs> I wanna be. So that's Randy Newman. <laughs> so this song was cut from the vinyl, mostly Maxwell on guitar and voice. I'm assuming that he's playing the guitar, uh, but it, it might be Joe. I didn't, I didn't think about asking. This time. This time. But it also features Richard Nunn's on the Tangopuro again. So there are some calls of the Tangopuro. And that leads us into Pendulum, the title track of the album. The pulsing tremolo on the keyboard is actually quite scary, isn't it? Bit sinister, yeah. It's quite yeah. sinister. That was my first exposure to Nord keyboards. Yeah, so I'd uh, I'd never knowing much about keyboards and I saw them play and he had a Nord keyboard there and I was thinking, wow, that's cool. The timbre of the guitar 
Sounds great. And I'll let Joe explain what they had to do to get through to that. He's got this collection of old antique analogy bits and pieces that he can pull out. oh i just happen to have one of those and he'll pull it out you know even to the point where we wanted a a bit of a wish you were here reference we wanted this guitar to sound like it was coming through an old transistor radio like start out of tune and then slowly go into tune and sound like it was coming out of a transistor radio but all the effects we were trying and you know the plug-in digital effects weren't really cutting it and lee just happened to have a little small uh, miniature fm transmitter lying around so we could actually send the guitar that had been recorded across a particular frequency band and tune it into his little radio in the kitchen (laughs) and record his radio in the kitchen tuned into this frequency band of this fm transmitter that he just happened to have like so so that's lee you know anything you can care to mention he'll have some solution or some genius little bit of gear that he has lying around i really like the e minor guitar riff i think that sounds really cool Mm. with the with the changing bass pedal so it's it's quite cool to hear that e minor just repeating over the drumming pattern in the chorus is really creative i mean he could have just gone for a solid two four backbeat but probably that would have been fun well, it just it just might have taken a bit of the integrity out of it. Yeah. The next song is War. I'm going to argue this is the most psychedelic on the record. Yeah, it's up there. Definitely. It's yeah. um It's was... not spacey doors trippy psychedelic, but it's No, say Black it's Black that. Sabbath yeah. sort of early Sabbath, not Bark at the Moon Sabbath. Um <laughs> changes we don't talk about yeah Bark at the moon sabbath um was that sabbath or was that just aussie actually that was sabbath that was sabbath yeah but yeah like like paranoid mm. yeah it's huge this song absolutely massive the most psychedelic there's less space compared to the seed but the unison riff takes on a sense of like a chant and puts the band and definitely the listener into a bit of a trance Just that relentless chant that just, it hooks you in wicked guitar tones. Mm-hmm. Care of the Crowther Hotcake. Ah. Yeah, you can't be a Kiwi guitarist without the Crowther Hotcake. Do you have a Crowther Hotcake? I do. I bought it from the man himself. Yeah. Which one's the hotcake? That's the it. distortion. It was specifically built for Neil Finn oh. back in his days in Split Ends. It's it's a it's a Vox pedal basically. I can't help 
but think of like a night attack in a war situation with this song and i i'm always thinking like native american or possibly the the native maori people of new zealand because i like to think like the compound got the big wooden posts around there and all of a sudden there's an ambush but rather postmodern i like to think of like right as the band kicks in there's this slow motion shot of red flare going up and all you can see is just like all the faces illuminated by the, by the flare. Nice. I've watched a lot of war films, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I like to think of with that song. I really, really do like that. Good song. It's a good oh. song. And I like the pull of it. sounds like Sabbath. Yeah. I'd never really considered that. I'd say people forget early Sabbath were blues, blues and psychedelic stuff. Mm. And then they got eighties hair metal. Yeah, then they got a bit of aware, th- aware of themselves, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, and they hired Dio. The next song then is Peace. I see what they did. Ambience. Yeah, at the end of the war comes peace, or so they say. I like to think of this symbolising a lack of action post-war everybody's trying to get back to normality or maybe it's the emptiness or the absence of life the wasteland that is left environmentally Mm. speaking i'm not sure if you've been to any battlefields uh not i've not partook in one no Uh, but like even now when you go back to the battlefields they're quite haunted they're quite desolate and barren now and i mean they're still digging things out of the somme right they're still digging bullets and bombs and so on I don't think they will ever stop digging things out of the song. Pretty incredible. And ultimately, when you think about it, this is not a political podcast, but supposedly World War I was started by the assassination of one Archduke. Yeah, which then led to a series of people because they were in treaties with other people declaring war on each other and... Somehow Germany ended up with the blame. Well, wasn't it it something like 80,000 British men died on the first day of the Somme? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It was... A lot of people. A lot of people because one guy got shot. Can't blame the guy who got shot. You can't blame the guy that got shot. But yeah, I mean the thing is I guess I guess if anything, this the the song piece it's actually even though it sounds quite peaceful and ambient, it actually seems a little bit haunting, a little bit of a scathing attack on the futility of war. Very nice. Yeah, thank you. Without having to say a word as well, they, they, uh, not you, them. But I think that's what, that if they had done some sort of spoken word over the top of it, if they had done some lyrics, it would have ruined it. Yeah, I'd have I think, from I it. I think with them not saying anything, it actually makes it even more impactful. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the final track is called Peaceful Man. There's a strummed violin and a 12-string guitar, which we think sounds more like a mandolin more like a mandolin but it's actually uh, the 12 string guitar and the strum violin the chorus texture is filled out by added drums and electric guitar
toured with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and this was one of Joe's favourite songs to perform with the orchestra he can explain why and the favourite one to play with the APO and the NZSO I'm going to say Peaceful Man um, just because I think that came across real beautiful with the orchestra I guess obviously with it being a quieter one there's more space for the orchestra to breathe and John Sarthus did such beautiful string arranging that whole end section with the strings I thought that came out real nice They toured with the NZSO. This was one of Joe's favourite songs to perform with the orchestra. The arrangements were done by John Psathis, a Kiwi of Greek origin who composed the opening and closing themes for the 2004 Athens Olympics. Ah. Yeah. He did a guest lecture at my school uh, for GCSE and A-level music students. Very humble bloke. Very cool guy. I love the outro, the guitar arpeggios, the guitar slides, the swung bass with jazzy drums, the space around the instruments. That leads us now into the final section of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jake, having listened to Pendulum by The Little Bushman from 2007, what is your favourite track? War. Uh, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Sing it again! Okay. Why, why do you like war? Um, because I like Black Sabbath. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it about as much. Mm-hmm. 
does for my favourite track on this album. I think I'm going to have to go with the mirror. We call her crazy. Traditionally, it has not been my favourite. I'm surprised, actually. I thought you would have gone for... Um, Nature of Man with the younger Bungas. No, not Nature of Man, actually. Hang on. The Seed. No. Uh, I thought you would have gone for Holy Ground. Yeah, that that's actually traditionally been one of my favourites. Uh, but I, there's something about Mary at the moment. hey But there is something about Mary that's, uh, that's really kept my interest over the last couple of weeks of listening to this. Where does this rank in your top 10? Currently it's King Crimson, Devo, Ween, Foof, Scott, and then the other two. What were so, the other two? Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse and Blake Mills. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to slot it nicely in at number five. Hey! It's a win. I thought that was going to go in at number eight. No, no, no. Put it in at number five. Number five. Number five. So who's it above? Blake Mills, Amy Winehouse. And Scott Walker. And Scott Walker. Mm. Cool. Very cool. Uh, I'm going to actually slot this into number one. but <laughs> I'm not surprised. I've got a lot of history with this with this band. I've got a lot of history with this album. This, this has been one of the things that I've listened to the most since leaving New Zealand, since leaving the shores of Aotearoa. And being over here in the UK, there have been times when you find yourself quite homesick. And this album, unlike many others from New Zealand, manages to have... That sense of earthiness that manages to retain that sense of purpose and culture, and it just keeps me quite grounded while I'm while I'm homesick. So, lastly, Jake, Pendulum by the Little Bushman. Is it a sound purchase? Um, yes, with the caveat: if you don't like psychedelic music, no. Okay, so it is a sound purchase on the caveat of you have to be looking for psychedelia. Yeah. I think my answer is it's, it's obviously yes. Really obvious, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this is a sound it's my, purchase. It's my number one, but uh, don't buy it. No, Just I, I think can you buy everybody it? in the world should be buying this. Well, you can stream it for sure on everywhere. Yeah, uh, you can buy it on Bandcamp, digital copies. Uh, you might be able to get Flack and so on on Bandcamp. They did a run. They may, I don't know, but they may still have a couple of copies left of the vinyl. Uh, which I said before that was done through and you can buy the CDs and so on on Discogs or other reputable sellers. Which one would you cover and think you could do it really good justice? Uh, any of these songs? Yeah. None of them because not just me doing the cover. No, no, no. Like, like, like let's say you're, you're like Blake Mills and you can I assemble can your all-star cast. Well, I'd have to do war. War with Black Sabbath? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd get get Tony in, and I wouldn't not too fuss about the rest of Black Sabbath. To be honest, just Tony. Oh, wait, what about Geezer Butler? No. Yeah, I don't even care about Ozzy. I am Stefan, and this has been a Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. 
Check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at stephsquatch.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle Steph Squatch blog. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts and stephsquatch.com. Our thanks go to Joe Corwood and Lee Preble for answering our questions. You can hear the full interview with Joe at stephsquatch.com. If you've enjoyed the sounds during today's episode, visit your local record store to pick up a copy of The Little Bushman's Pendulum. You can find their work online at littlebushmanband.bandcamp.com. You can find Joe's work online at joecorwood.bandcamp.com. Lee Preble's studio is The Surgery. And you can find The Little Bushman's side project, The Woods, with Tom, Joe and Rick, a jazzy instrumental group at thewoods4.bandcamp.com. That's thewoods, numeral four, at bandcamp.com. Support local music, support local business. <laughs>